we're the ones that are in the control room. If something goes wrong with the plant, we're the ones handling that transient. And so it's a big weight to have on our shoulders, but it's definitely the responsibility of that, as well as also a huge honor because it means that the utilities really put their trust in us as the licensed operators to kind of operate the plant well and deal with any issues that might arise. another edition of the YTE podcast. This is Sean McGee here with Courtney Tampas. She's a senior reactor operator at the Surrey Power Station in Virginia. I'm usually the podcast editor for this podcast, but I'm hosting today and not looking forward to editing my own voice. Let's dive right into it. Uh, Courtney, how about you give us uh, some background on yourself? Yeah, of course. So thanks, Sean, again, for having me on. So like, like you said, my name is Courtney Tampas. I am currently a senior reactor operator, but I didn't start out that way. And I, I actually, I grew up in Florida. I went to school at the University of Florida. I got my bachelor's in nuclear engineering. And then I started at the VC Summer Project, the AP1000s in South Carolina as a PRA engineer. Uh, so I, I started out as an engineer. And uh, once the project was canceled, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, once that project got canceled, I moved to Surrey, Virginia, where I started as a senior reactor operator in training and then went through the licensing process and just recently got my license back in October of 2021. Yeah, congratulations. And we'll get into it, but I'm sure that wasn't an easy feat. For the listeners, uh, PARA is probabilistic risk assessment. Uh, That's what I had done in the nuclear industry several years ago as well. And that's how I met Courtney. You said you grew up in Florida. How did you get interested in nuclear power? Um, I think it kind of goes back all the way to high school. So I, you know, I took chemistry a lot in high school. I took it as a as an honors course, and then I ended up taking it as an AP course. Had the same teacher for both. He was really inspiring. Um, a very big uh, proponent of you know renewable and uh, alternate energy sources. And he focused a lot on nuclear, especially when I took AP chemistry with him. And so that kind of got me thinking about it. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to do engineering once I went to the University of Florida. They have a great engineering program there, just like a lot of other schools do. Uh, but I went to the University of Florida, not really knowing exactly which engineering I wanted to do. And I took a course where uh, we basically went to every engineering department and got like an introduction to their staffing, to their professors, to kind of projects that they were working on, research that you could get involved in. And the nuclear department just seemed like a really good fit. It was a little bit of a smaller department. Uh, they had a lot of really prominent staff uh, members. You know, our professors have been involved in the nuclear industry for many, many years, whether it's nuclear Navy or civilian or just research in general. And the fact that University of Florida actually does have a research reactor was another kind of driving point for me. And, uh, and I decided to check it out in my sophomore year, switch over, and I never looked back. That's great. Yeah, I had a kind of a similar thing in high school. I knew I wanted to go into engineering, but just didn't know what. Nothing was really speaking to me. And then uh, we did like a week-long unit on nuclear power and the rest is history. Let's get into the positions a little bit. You started off in probabilistic risk assessment. Uh, So for the listeners, could you describe what that is and what you enjoyed about that? 
Yeah, yeah, I'll do my best. Um, you know, I am a little rusty. It's been a few years since I've really done PRA. Uh, but, you know, from, for PRA, for probabilistic risk assessment, uh, what we're really doing is we're looking at um, the likelihood or the probability of reaching a state where the reactor would have what's called a core damage event. So you're looking at your fuel melting, so similar to what we've seen in past accidents uh, in the nuclear industry. So the whole point of PRA is to figure out the most likely ways that something might happen which could cause a core damage event and then use that knowledge to mitigate it in the act in the plant so you're increasing the reliability of your components uh, you're looking at how to kind of eliminate obstacles how to eliminate uh, in some cases the human reliability side of it so that's where operators like me now come into play uh, you're looking at you know equipment reliability programs like the maintenance rule and mitigating systems performance index which are going to help you track and trend all of your equipment so that you can continue to have reliable equipment so that these these event sequences or these fault trees that would potentially lead to issues or accidents or transients in the plant don't happen. So I guess the to start a probabilistic risk assessment for a plant, you have to look at what we call the event sequence. So you're looking at things like initiating events that have a likelihood of occurrence. So in some cases, something like an external flood, so heavy rainfall, or if it's a coastal plant, things like that, that might affect uh, a flooding frequency versus an earthquake frequency if you're in an area where um, you have a higher likelihood of earthquakes or higher likelihood of, of more severe storms, things like that. So you're looking at initiating events. Then from that initiating event, you build on what the sequence of success or failure would be for different pieces of equipment or systems to function in their proper way in order for the core to actually stay uh, stay covered, stay cool, and um, for all of your equipment, hopefully at least the minimum equipment that you need to work. So from those event sequences, based on the failure of those event sequences, so each sequence or each event in that event sequence, each of those events has a fault tree associated with it. So it looks into uh, how is that component or train or piece of equipment or even um, the, the actual structure itself, things like that, how is that going to fail? And so the fault trees are created from those each of those events, and then those are all assigned probability of likelihood as well. So once that likelihood is determined, then you can determine your core damage frequency, which is, like I said before, the probability that you're going to have some sort of fuel melt event where you're not able to keep the core cool and covered. And then also there's a secondary side to that, your large early release frequency. So the probability of potentially releasing something to the atmosphere that we don't want to release. Okay. Yeah. You're not rusty at all. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was similar at BC Summer, but where I was, uh, the PRA group was always kind of looked at as the oddballs in the engineering organization. Always on our computers and not necessarily out in the plant on the front lines, but but if we could deliver uh, some risk numbers to the regulator that would allow us to stay at power and not shut down, we could save a million dollars just like that. So. Yeah, and it's it's actually really exciting seeing how much more uh, the risk informed 
decision making is being used in the industry. So most of the older, uh, I say older, but most of the existing nuclear industry right now uh, actually doesn't truly require a probabilistic risk assessment. It's just something that's nice to have that helps inform our decisions. The AP1000s like at Vogel 3 and 4, uh, it's actually part of the design of the plant where they are required to have the PRA. So they're making those risk-informed decisions from the start, unlike some of the other plants in the U.S. where the risk-informed decision-making in these PRAs came into effect in the in the 80s and 90s when they first started doing these analyses. And now they're becoming a big part of it. But uh, but a lot of the, the, the stuff that we're looking at is a little later or a little newer than the actual plant itself. But I definitely agree. I, I think more risk-informed decision-making and if the if the NRC could really, you know, they see the benefit of it, they just want to make sure that we're implementing it the proper way. Um, but I think it's a great move forward for the industry. Great. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Vogel 3 and 4. They're uh, the only two nuclear reactors under construction in the United States right now down in Georgia. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, VC Summer did have two units that were going to be under construction. Could you explain kind of that process and eventually what happened with those reactors? Yeah, so VC Summer 2 and 3, uh, there is currently an operating unit 1 there. They went online in 1984, so it's been a while since they've had a new plant on site. But I started at VC Summer 2 and 3 in 2012, probably about a month after the, the site got the go-ahead from the NRC to start building the AP-1000s. And I came on, you know, like I said, in the PRA group. And what that entailed was working with Southern's PRA engineers and working with Westinghouse's PRA engineers to actually develop the PRA for the AP-1000 while the plants were being built. And so it was actually a really fun experience. Like I enjoyed every minute that I spent there. I worked in a building that where you could go to the one end of the building and see uh, the very large crane or derrick that we were using to construct the plant. You could see that every day. And sometimes we were doing really big lifts. So we would lift up any of the steam generators to place them. I was down in the field when we placed the reactor vessel in unit three. So um, there was a lot of progress made on the units in the uh, about five years that I was there. And and we definitely had a, a good time kind of learning and developing. And we were a very young organization. A lot of younger engineers were coming in because this was going to be kind of how the original nuclear industry started with a lot of young engineers and operators. We were going to be the young engineers and operators kind of bringing the AP-1000 online. And then in 17, uh, there were several setbacks in, from a financial standpoint, at least with VC Summer, especially with the Westinghouse bankruptcy that happened in March of 2017 as well. And then the partner of South Carolina Electric and Gas, which was the original owner of, AP, of the AP-1000s at VC Summer, uh, they decided to uh, not continue the project from their standpoint. They weren't a majority shareholder, but they were enough of a shareholder that South Carolina Electric and Gas could not continue the project without their support. So um, I do. I remember that day like it was, you know, yesterday. Uh, I, I was on my way to a business trip uh, to Pittsburgh, and my friend was messaging me saying, "Have you heard the news? Have you seen the news?" And I said, "No, of course I'm driving." Uh, and then I got a friend. I got a call from my coworker, my friend. And he said, hey, you need to turn around. Uh, there's been there's been a cancellation. So come back to the plant. So that was and that was July 
31st of 2017. So it was quite quite a big day for, for the industry and kind of, in my opinion, a setback for kind of the future of nuclear. But uh, I think there's been a lot of progress made at Vogel 3 and 4 with their AP1000 project and a lot of progress made in the industry with like secondary license renewal for a lot of the existing, existing plants. Yeah, I remember everyone at my utility was sad about it too. You know, unlike maybe some other industries, the nuclear family is kind of uh, all supporting each other uh, because, you know, as Fukushima showed us, you know, an accident that one plant in the world affects plants all across the world. So, yeah, hopefully Vogel 3 and 4 can come up to power soon. I think they're on track for this year at some point. Yep, that was the last that I heard. So hopefully uh, third or fourth quarter, I think, for Unit 3 and then sometime next year for Unit 4. Okay. All right, so it sounds like you've wanted to be a reactor operator for some time, and uh, now you're a SRO, Senior Reactor Operator, at the Surrey Nuclear Plant in Virginia. Can you tell us about that transition and the the process to to get your license? Sure. So uh, I guess I'll kind of backtrack a little bit to when I was at VC Summer 2 and 3. So I actually had the opportunity to go through uh, what they call an SROC, so that Senior Reactor Operator Certification. So it's a it's an internal only process. It's specific to each utility. And the the process for VC Summer at the time was to kind of shorten the total time period uh, that that normal operators would go through to get a license just to give uh, people who might not be in the operations department and might not necessarily go into operations at some point, give them the opportunity to learn the systems the way the operators do and learn the simulator so that they can actually have that operational experience when they when they go back to their original position. So I had that opportunity actually in uh, in 2015 and I I had a great time. I learned a lot and I really enjoyed being in the control room, uh, kind of, you know, manipulating components, uh, being in charge of procedures, going through the different transients that they've, you know, planned for. Uh, for the plant. And so when when the cancellation of the project happened, uh, one of my goals when I was looking for a new position was to uh, really focus on trying to get into an operational position. So getting into operations. And luckily, I was able to find that fit at Surrey Power Station. Um, they offered what they call an SRO IT, so a direct SRO position, uh, which does have some requirements that are a little different if you were to go through as a non-licensed operator into a reactor operator and then get upgraded to a senior reactor operator. A direct SRO requires a technical degree, so a bachelor's in some science. And then also most of the time it's, it's five years of nuclear experience to get a direct SRO position. So luckily, that was a good fit between me and Surrey Power Station, and I started there in uh, in December of 2017, and I was supposed to be on site for about a year before class started in, uh, in I believe, January 2019. Uh, we had a couple delays to class, so I had a six-month delay uh, to start, and then about three months into that delay, they told us there was going to be another six-month delay, so I ended up spending uh, two years as a SRO IT and uh, a trainee, basically, which 
you know, had its downs, had its ups and downs itself, but also afforded the opportunity for me to work four outages at Surrey Tower Station. It's a dual unit site. So I was able to work four outages as what we call a project SRO. So I was running uh, different projects in the plant. We're tagging out equipment. We're, we're handing things off to maintenance and then bringing the equipment back at the end of the at the end of the tag out. Um, and then just doing different sorts of projects as we go, a lot of admin uh, material procedures that need to get signed off. Um, so that really kind of helped me develop from the from the professional side as well as the technical side because I got to learn to manage the non-licensed operators, uh, kind of direct them in, in what projects that we were going to be doing, do all of the required briefs, and then from a professional side or from a technical side, really learning the plant because when a plant shut down, it's a lot different. You know, you have you have uh, contractors and maintenance crews and instrument technicians and things like that. They're crawling all over the plant. They're doing a lot of maintenance on things that aren't normally open uh, in terms of like systems and, and protection relays and things like that. So it offered a lot of opportunities for me to really get out in the field, see what was going on and kind of learn the plant from, you know, from being shut down and then starting up. And then once uh, once the delays were all through, I started class in January of 2020. So we started right before the COVID pandemic hit and we went through the normal normal licensing process with that, which was it's called GFES, your generic fundamentals. So that was a lot of things that was you know kind of a review from college. So it's a lot of thermodynamics, a lot of reactor physics a lot of components, uh, some mechanical engineering in there as well. So we took an exam for that and then we moved into our systems where we learned all of the systems at Surrey on a very in-depth basis. And then from there moved into the simulator portion, which involved learning how to respond to transients. You know, myself being a direct, I actually was had to be evaluated both as a supervisor reading in the back, reading all the emergency procedures in the back, but also at the boards as well. So I was manipulating components in order to just show the NRC and the licensing process that I understood the plant itself. So and all, all said and done uh, with an outage in there as well. Uh, just because we do have, you know, the, the plant keeps moving even while we're in class. Uh, it was about a 20 month process. So January 2020 to October or we took the exam in September 2021 and then received our licenses in October of 2021. Wow, that's incredible. Congratulations. I had a great time. I still really enjoy being an operator. So that's that's all the class. <laughs> So the two units at Surrey, are they similar enough that you could operate either one or was your training on a specific unit? So it depends on the plant, but at Surrey, we actually share a control room. So uh, when I uh, received my license and when I was training to get my license, uh, I got a license for both units. Some plants, especially those that might have different control rooms and some plants actually have uh, two different types of reactors on the same site. Those those individuals might be licensed for one or the other, but at Surrey, I actually have a license for both. So I'll come in on on a shift and I'll say, I'm gonna take unit one today, and then maybe for the weekend, I'll have unit one, and then the next week when I come in, I'll take unit two. So it's uh, it's definitely, they're similar enough, different, different numbers for components and things like that, but I'm licensed on both. Okay. 
And when you talk about your license, that's uh, the NRC giving you the license, not the not the utility itself. Like ultimately, you answer to the NRC and that responsibility of uh, protecting the public. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, so the NRC actually, our our utility or the individual utility will write the exam, will write the simulator scenarios that you have to perform, as well as the JPMs, the job performance measures. So you're uh, you're out in the plant simulating uh, manipulation of components in order to mitigate some event that they're telling you is happening that that you have to respond to and as well as simulator jpms and then administrative jpms so you're looking at things like submitting documentation to the nrc based on some uh text that call or or you know anything like that so so we had a lot of um a lot of things that we had to do the utility wrote all of that information and then the nrc came in approved our written test, our simulator scenarios, and all of our JPMs. And then at least for the in-person, so the simulator scenarios and the JPMs, uh, the NRC actually administered the exam. So they were they were our proctors for the those different parts. And then the written exam uh, was, you know, just given to us and we had eight hours to complete the exam. Eight hours. Wow. Oh, that sounds horrible. Yeah, it was like, it was. It, it kind of reminded me of like the FE. I d- I took the fundamentals of engineering. I didn't take. I haven't taken the PE yet. But <laughs> okay. So now that you have your license, what's a day in the life of an SRO? So a day in the life of the SRO. Um, it it changes every day. You're never doing the same thing twice. Not no one day looks like the last. Uh, but you know the the slower days where there's not a lot going on, where all you're really doing is your normal day-to-day activities, procedure reviews, things like that, and uh, routine tests is uh, is kind of the days that you always want. And then a lot of days we are interfacing a lot with other members of the organizations that in it, that are at the plant. So our instrumentation organizations, our mechanical maintenance organizations, our engineering organization, uh, we're interfacing with all of those members in order to potentially plan any maintenance that needs to get done on equipment that might have some small malfunctions. We've seen things like meters that might be indicating improperly. We've seen uh, valves that might not be easy to operate for our operators. And it could be any something as big as a full maintenance package on a, a large pump in the plant that was you know, planned years and years ago. So uh, every day is a little bit different, but definitely a, a different experience every day. And I, and I really enjoy that. So what are kind of the, the biggest challenges or biggest stresses that come with the job? I think for me personally, uh, it's, it's the shift work and the rotating shifts. So uh, it might be different at different plants, but at Surrey, we, we rotate from days to nights and we work 12 hour shifts. Uh, we do have a couple of days off in between those and we do get longer breaks every now and then. But the, the rotating shifts and shift work can definitely put some stress on your life because you're spending, you know, half the day, you're spending 12 hours at the plant. So any time that, you know, your commuting time to and back, anything that you want to do outside of that, it's definitely digging into that. And it, it can be a big challenge, especially for those who might have families with kids and, and who want to, you know, hang out outside of work. It's not really something that you can do. So it's it's not necessarily a challenge uh, to some or a stress. But if you 
if that's something that is, you know, important to you or, or something that you think that might be an issue, it's, it's can be hard at times. And then I kind of talked about it before, but like having not every day be the same, you're not seeing the same projects or maintenance or activities happening the same day. Uh, that can also be kind of challenging at times because you have to be prepared for anything. So those, those activities that we're doing, we always want them to go just as they're planned, you know, follow the procedure word for word and have everything work properly and get great results from everything that we're testing. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And so that can, that can put some stress on the operators, uh, in terms of, you know, you might have to enter uh, some some limiting condition for operation if it's severe enough, or it could just be more administrative work where we have to do more testing, uh, do some more tag outs, tagging out that piece of equipment or part of that piece of equipment in order to fix whatever issue that we found. And then I think for me, the biggest challenge and stress that I see is just kind of knowing that, you know, the station kind of looks to my department and me as a senior reactor operator to make the right choice. So, you know, we're, we're the ones that are in the control room. If something goes wrong with the plant, we're the ones handling that transient. And so it's a big weight to have on our shoulders, but it's definitely the responsibility of that, as well as also a huge, um, in my, in my opinion, a huge honor because it means that the plant has, the utilities really put their trust in us as the licensed operators to kind of operate the plant well and deal with any issues that might arise. Have you had any transients since you've been licensed? Any reactor trips that you've had to deal with? No, I, I haven't had any trips or anything that required any sort of immediate actions or anything like that. Um, we've had a couple small issues where things have gone out of service, uh, where we've had to enter what we call our abnormal operating procedures, but uh, they've been minor and and nothing was truly affected. Uh, but when we do train in the simulator, which operations has to go uh, every five weeks, we get trained and we go into the simulator and, and that's where we kind of develop our skill set and make sure that we stay up to date on on and updated, but also, uh, I guess, familiar with how to perform the actions if a transient were to happen. So nothing for real, but definitely a lot in the simulator. Yeah, all of these actions for the listeners, these operator actions are all modeled in the PRA models. Uh, the models have, you know, the likelihood that the initiating event will happen, like an earthquake, uh, the probability of failure for some components, but also that the operators will follow their procedures correctly and manipulate the right equipment. So how does that feel to kind of have the shoe on the other foot now where the PRA people are modeling you? I really hope that I don't make the mistakes that they that they model us to potentially make. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope I hope that I can read the procedure well and and have my operators operate the correct correct equipment in order for us to to avoid any any core damage events or anything uh, negative in that aspect. Great. So when I was in the industry, one of the craziest times was always while the plant was on an outage. So I think Surrey has 18 month cycles and there's two units, so that means. Uh, what, two outages one year and one outage the next year and just keep on repeating that. Could you talk about just some of the, the circus that comes with outage life? Yeah, definitely. Uh, during an outage, we go into what's called super cruise. So uh, at least in the ops department, uh, one 
super crew, which is approximately half of the department, will go onto a straight days outage. So they'll be on day shift the entire outage and the other super crew will be on nights. And we all work, uh, we call them four and one. So you work four days and you have one day off and then you repeat that process from start to finish of the outage. So from that aspect, there's really not a lot of time for any of us to do anything other than focus on the outage. And then for the outage itself, the biggest things that we're doing, we're, you know, we're taking the unit offline. So normally our units are producing about 900 megawatts each. Uh, when we take one of those units off, we're slowly ramping the unit offline. So we're slowly lowering the power until we get to a point where we can actually um, open our generator output breakers, stop putting power out to the grid, and then really focus on the reactor and powering that down to get rid of any uh, decay heat in the reactor itself, and then um, continue to remove that decay heat as it stays for you know the first few days of an outage. Uh, once that's done, uh, we'll go into some tag outs of, of certain systems that aren't necessarily uh, needed for zero power operation. So we'll tag out secondary systems, things with the turbine, uh, things with feed water, uh, which are what cool our steam generators. But because we aren't producing power and have really no heat at, that, at this point, we don't need uh, the steam generator feed water. So we'll tag that out as well. And then uh, once the reactor actually has no more decay heat, no more uh, no more heat coming off of it, we'll, uh, we'll unload all the fuel. We'll put it all in our spent fuel pool. Uh, we'll do all of our maintenance in the period that we call empty vessel. So there's no fuel in the vessel. It's all in the spent fuel pool. We'll do any primary maintenance on the primary side. So that's anything like our reactor coolant pumps our charging pumps, which are what give all of our diluted or borated water to the reactor coolant system. So anything tied to the reactor coolant system, this window is when we would do that work. And then we'll onload our fuel when that's all done, clear all the tag outs for any equipment that's been tagged out. And then we will start working towards bringing the plant back online. And, and the, that can take anywhere from that whole process of ramping offline refueling, doing all the maintenance and coming back uh, is normally about 25 to 40 days, depending on the scope of the maintenance that you're doing. So we're here for over a month working those four and ones and, and with these large super crews and it's all of our shifts kind of put together and uh, and we have a great time, but we're all exhausted at the end and, and we're ready to see that light at the end of the tunnel. But it's always a rewarding experience. Like I said, I had an opportunity to work uh, several outages as a trainee and it kind of got me very exposed to the type of work that I would be doing as an actual SRO with a license. Great. Yeah, I had the opportunity to work a couple outages as well as an intern and then as a full-time PRA guy. Mm -hmm. And just walking into parts of the plant that, you know, you just can't enter any other time just because of the, the radiation. Mm -hmm. It was a heck of an experience. All right, Courtney, let's go on to the questions that we ask all of our guests. What excites you the most about the future of your industry? Yeah, so I think I think one of the biggest things is, is you know, seeing uh, projects like Vogel 3 and 4. I know I've mentioned them a few times, but um, they're so close to, to starting up and coming online as the newest, you know, online reactors uh, that we've seen in the past 20 or 30 years. And then all of the new reactors that are that are being developed and researched and tested right now, um, it you know, way back when when we were building 
the reactors that are currently in the industry now, there was really only a couple of different designs, a couple of different types. And now we're looking at uh, small modular reactors. We're looking at uh, gas reactors, liquid metal reactors, uh, and and just and pebble beds. I mean, name it, and it's been developed by somebody or at least researched. And I'm really excited to kind of see where those advanced generation reactors kind of develop into. And, and if we can actually see one of those get built in the U.S., I think I'd love to see that. And then I think another thing I'm really excited about is is really that renewed focus. I talked about the the industry being young, at least for VC Summer 2 and 3, but I think that's starting to kind of pick up for the rest of the industry as well. So we're seeing that renewed focus on the development of the up-and-coming generation because you and I, we're kind of getting to the point where in, in our careers in nuclear or, or, you know, in my career in nuclear, I'm moving towards that management track, looking at taking over some of the positions of, of those who might be retiring in the next five to 10 years. So that's that's something that we need to develop ourselves, but also be developed by those who have that vast amount of knowledge who have been working at these plants, you know, since the since the 70s, 80s and 90s. And some of them are still here. So, yeah, I think some interest in the industry kind of took a hit after Fukushima. But, yeah, I'm hoping it can ramp back up. And I'm also excited about all the different types of reactors that are being designed right now. It's really cool stuff. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, what scares you about the industry? Yeah, I think the biggest thing uh, that I can think of is is really just the aging side. So I talked about, you know, those very valuable people who have been at the plants for for a long time are getting to their retirement age. But also the the plants themselves are starting to get um, a little bit older as well. So a lot of updates are needing to be done in order for uh, things like subsequent license renewal to be approved by the NRC. Uh, and for me that, you know, we just need to capture and retain all of that information, especially coming from those people who are retiring. And then for the plants themselves, we just need to uh, make sure that everything that we're doing um, when we're doing subsequent license renewal is really uh really benefiting the plant. And then you've obviously made it a long way. Uh, SRO is one of the most respected jobs on site. Uh, do you have any advice for other young professionals in the energy fields out there? Yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice that I can give to engineers or really anyone who is in the nuclear industry and maybe looking for something different um, or in some in college in a technical school or just looking to break into the nuclear industry is really take that leap think about something that that you might not have initially thought that you would either be good at or that you would enjoy and really just kind of look into it a little bit more uh talk to people find a mentor find someone who can give you that that information that advice and just take that leap i think it really pays off and that and we're all kind of in this together and so you'll definitely have that support from not just your department but also the utility as well in a department like operations you know we're, we're vital to the continuation of the plant and so uh, having that interest of someone wanting to move into a department like operations is definitely something that will get you a lot of support and then it's uh, and then the other thing that I would say to anyone interested, especially coming to operations, is be open, look into look into what you want to do and kind of how that's going to 
fit your overall goals. So you always want to be one step ahead of where you are, you know, and this is more long term planning. But I think the I think the big thing to recognize is that operations, while it's a it's a great opportunity and some people enjoy spending their entire careers there. If you want to get into management as well, operations is a great stepping stone for that too. So it gives you that operational experience like I talked about and it has a lot of opportunities um, to get involved in projects and maintenance and activities that you might not have initially worked on if you were in another department. Great. Well, let's leave it there. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.